0: Good morning, church. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Amos, chapter 5. That's page 767 in the Bibles provided for you in the pews. Those of you joining us for the first time, we're studying through these small books at the end of the Old Testament called the Minor Prophets. We've studied several already, and we're in the middle of Amos We're going to spend uh, several weeks in chapter 5 because it is such an important chapter in the book of Amos and also representative of so many of the key themes of all the minor prophets. So today we will look at a couple of verses in particular. We'll read uh, verses 1 to 17, but uh, we'll look at verses 11 and 12 in particular and use it as... uh, a catalyst for discussing a broader topic of ministering to the poor in Jesus' name. Remember, this is the main focus of Amos' ministry. He's going to the northern uh, nation of Israel. The southern nation is called Judah. The northern set of tribes is called Israel. We're called Israel. And uh, their king was Jeroboam, and Jeroboam trying to keep the people of of Israel from going down south to Jerusalem and, and feeling like that was more convenient to get to the temple, created two, two altars in the north, one at Dan and one in Bethel, and put a golden calf there. And the golden calf was representative of what they were worshiping. Because they were free from foreign oppression, Assyria was bound up with its own problems. Their, their economy was roaring Uh, But the problem was uh, people who were experiencing the benefits of the economy were not sharing with others. Their houses got bigger, the archaeologists tell us, they got 25% bigger while the houses of the lower classes got 25% smaller. And God sent Amos to the north to say, I redeemed you out of slavery. I redeemed you Out of the pit I redeemed you out of spiritual poverty and you have forgotten to be generous in the easiest possible way, looking after the material needs, the spiritual needs of those around you. But as we often, as we always see in Scripture, God's motivation For calling people back to faithfulness is not guilt manipulation, but rather back to the gospel, back to first things. The refrain of this passage is, seek me and live. Seek a relationship with me. Be renewed in your relationship with me and you will live. Listen for that theme as we begin reading in verse 1 of Amos chapter 5. Hear this word. And I take up over you and lamentation, O house of Israel. Fallen no more to rise is the virgin Israel, forsaken on her land with none to raise her up. For thus says the Lord God, the city that went out a thousand shall have a hundred left, and that which went out a hundred shall have ten left to the house of Israel. For thus says the Lord to the house of Israel, seek me and live. Do not seek Bethel do not enter into Gilgal don't cross over to Beersheba for Gilgal shall surely go into exile Bethel shall come to nothing seek the Lord and live lest he break out like fire in the house of Joseph and it devour with none to quench it for Bethel. O oh, you who turn justice to wormwood and cast down righteousness to the earth, he who made the Pleiades and Orion and turns deep darkness into the morning and darkens the day into night, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out on the surface of the earth. The Lord is his name, who makes destruction flash forth against the strong so that destruction comes upon the fortress. They hate him. "'Who reproves in the gate, and they abhor him who speaks the truth. "'Therefore, because you trample on the poor, and you exact taxes of grain from him, "'you have built houses of hewn stone, but you shall not dwell in them. "'You have planted pleasant vineyards, but you shall not drink their wine.'" For I know how many are your transgressions and how great are your sins, you who afflict the righteous, who take a bribe and turn aside the needy in the gate. Therefore, he who is prudent will keep silent in such a time, for it is an evil time. Seek good and not evil that you may live. And so the Lord The God of hosts will be with you. As you have said, hate evil and love good and establish justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord, in all the squares there shall be wailing. In all the streets they shall say, say, alas, alas. They shall call the farmers to mourning and to wailing, those who are skilled in lamentation. And in all vineyards, there shall be wailing, for I will pass through your midst, says the Lord. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Open our eyes, O Lord, that we would behold beautiful things from this portion of your word, the beauty of the gospel that moves us to imitate our Lord Jesus, move us to it afresh, include us in your work. We pray it in the strong name of Christ and for his sake and God's people said together, amen. A few years ago, a friend of mine decided to submit his DNA to one of these online services that helps you find and connect with your family tree. He is adopted, and he always had curiosity about other members of his family and particularly of his biological father. Well, uh, over some period of time, connections were made, and to make a very long story, And a very interesting story, short, he met his father. Through intermediaries, uh, these uh, who had connections to him, uh, representing his father, reached out to him. He, through them, reached back to them. And over time, they decided that they would try a meeting together, and they have enjoyed each other's company. They have fallen deeply in love with each other. My friend is a Christian. His father is not, but they deeply love each other. What is intriguing when we get together uh, at times, a couple of times, at least once a year for fellowship is to hear my friend describe the latest insight he's discovered into himself by looking to, listening to his father. You know, he says, you know how I furrow my brow and nobody else in my family does? That's the way my dad wrinkles his forehead. This weird sense of humor I have that none of you understands, well, that's from my dad. The the, the kinds of jokes we laugh at, the the idiosyncrasies we have, the mannerisms we have with our hand, I've realized that's from my dad. It's proven, it's reinforced with these mannerisms that, that were imitative of his dad. If you'd put them in the same room, you'd say, I think they may be the same person. They, they look and act together. But what proved it? Absolutely. What was the explanation? What is the final explanation for this similarity they have? It's that they share the same DNA. DNA. You know, Jesus says a similar thing—not the DNA language—but a similar thing about the way you will know whether or not Jesus lives in you. He does it in a startling way in one of his most startling, one of his most offensive sermons in Matthew 25, where he says there is a there at the great day will be a, a, a deep division among between humanity. As someone has written in recent times that uh, there, is, there, there are fault lines, deep fault lines in the church of Jesus Christ in America. He's right about that. He may be wrong in the diagnosis because counter to what he says in his book, the fault line, as Jesus defines it, is between the sheep and the goats. And the fault line between the sheep and the goats is the demonstration of mercy to those who are poor. The, the, the demonstration of mercy to those who are poor and poverty in the Bible is defined as a broken relationship with God, a broken relationship with others, a broken relationship with self, a broken relationship with material things. It is a broken relationship with the way the world is supposed to work. It is the absence of shalom, the peace of God. And yet the solution, according to Amos and according to Jesus, is not to just go out and start ministering to the poor and then you will earn your way into becoming a sheep and you'll earn your way into heaven. Absolutely not. Jesus is very clear about that. Amos is very clear about that. You're only saved by receiving the righteousness of God provided in Jesus Christ alone, received by faith alone. But the proof The proof that that righteousness of Jesus has come into your life, that that you share that DNA with Jesus, is you begin acting like him. And he says in Matthew 25 to the sheep, when I was in prison, when I was hungry, when I was thirsty, when I was alone, you came to me. You prove that you belonged to me. Enter into the inheritance prepared for you before the foundation of the world. I have called you to myself. I have, I have put my choice on you before the foundation of the world. I've drawn you to myself, and the proof that you belong to me is what you've done to the least of these. The goats on my left, they share some of the mannerisms. They look like us. They, they, they tithe They preach. They do foreign mission work. What is the difference? They don't know me. And you do. If they had known me, they would not have ignored the poor. The poor in relationship to God. The poor in relationship to material things. The poor in relationship to themselves. To share the DNA of Christ is to find yourself in the same places Jesus is already working. And just the way you do not acquire your DNA, you don't acquire that which is going to save you. You receive it as a gift. The very first thing you must... You must Realize this morning is if you do not know Christ in a personal way, this is the day of your salvation. The gospel has already been preached to you. There is the free offer of righteousness offered to you for the taking. But then here is the promise when Jesus moves in, you'll never be the same. And the proof that he lives in you is you find yourself moving into the same places where he is already working. Now you say, what does that have to do with Amos? Where is that in Amos? You, you preach the gospel, which is only in the New Testament. Oh, no, it is not. You must not have been studying with us so far. Because in Amos chapter 2, verse 10, look at what he says. Also, it was I who brought you up out of the land of Egypt and led you 40 years in the wilderness to possess the land of there. What is that? That is the Old Testament gospel. That is the anticipation of the coming of Christ. When he went into their slavery and brought them out and then brought them to Mount Sinai, after he had saved them from their slavery, he gives them the law and says, in response to that grace, this is what you are to do. There is the gospel of Jesus Christ being preached to them early on through that slain lamb, through the blood of the lamb. And then he says, I've also given you my word in chapter 2, verse 14. And he says in chapter 5, verses 6 and 14, I will be with you. That's Emmanuel. That is Jesus with us. The gospel is written all over the book of Amos. It wasn't as clear to them as it may be to us now. But the same principle is there. I have redeemed you. I sought you. I redeemed you. I shed blood for you. Your reasonable response is to respond to my grace by serving those who are also poor and enslaved. There's the simple point of the passage. I have sought you. Seek me and seek those whom I am seeking. Because you were poor and I rescued you, look for the poor and rescue them. Now if that is the point of the passage... Then how are we to put it into practice? Verses eleven and twelve, the heart of this first section of Amos that we are looking at, Amos five that we are looking at. Notice what he says to these uh, who uh, whom he is uh, uh, convicting, who he is addressing as being as being uh, as ignoring those who are in need around them. Therefore, because you trample on the poor. Now, there's no evidence that they are literally trampling on the poor. They're not physically abusing them. They're not going out and looking for them and beating them and and oppressing them. No, they're doing it indirectly. They're exacerbating their poverty by exacting taxes of grain. They are consuming what they could have shared by building houses, expensive houses for themselves. And they have planted pleasant vineyards, but they have not shared the gleanings with the poor who can't plant their own. Verse 12, I know how many are your transgressions and how great are your sins, but you afflict the righteous and take a bribe and turn aside the needy in the gate. You just ignore the need. Well, if that is what we're called to do, very simply is to ask, who around me is in need? Who has something that I feel, Who who is missing something I feel I could not live without? I could not live without, you name it. I could not live without that, that emotional supply that I have. I could not live without that material comfort i could not live without that social acceptance you look at what you have and what you could not live without and then with the eyes of jesus go looking for someone who doesn't have the same and say how can i meet that need how can i pray for it how can i bring resources to bear on it how can i show the love of jesus in response to the grace that Jesus has shown me and has filled me up in this area, how can I give it away? That's the point of the passage. Now here's some some very practical insights into poverty and then some applications. One uh, three three points that we learn from from uh, uh, from those who deal regularly with material poverty especially. As they look at this passage, one is limit consumption. Limit our own personal and professional consumption. Remember this uh, inglorious address that that uh, Amos uh, started out with in chapter four: "You cows of Bashan," he's talking to the to the women of the the upper class women the middle-class women of, of Israel, who were saying to their husbands, I want more, I want more, I want more. And their husbands, in order to give them more, were having to, to, uh, to reap to the ends of their crops rather than leaving some of them for the poor. They were having to exact, consume more resources for themselves to keep their wives happy. Now, remember I told you this was just not a wife problem because he uses a male pronoun in the next verse. This is a human problem. That when we we look at what we have, the resources available to us, we say, well, all of those are for me. All of that time. All of that money. All of this house. All of this energy I have, it's all for me, and so how can I spend it? And then we get to the end of it, and we see a need, and we say, I don't have anything to share. So the first thing he says we can do is to limit consumption. We can limit the, the amount that we consume on ourselves materially, emotionally, in terms of time. And say, this is what I need. This is, the, this is the minimum I need. And I'm going to leave this margin in my budget, in my schedule, in my energy. I'm going to leave this margin for when I discover someone who is poor in one of these areas. And I can invest in it. I remember uh, hunting a number of years ago with a a friend, a new friend, and um, he told me that he had not been hunting very much. And I said, what's, what's, what's wrong with your priorities? And uh, he said, well, I've, had to be, I've been working a lot more because my company, I own an insurance company with my brother, and we acquired a new insurance company, and it's not profitable. And uh, I said, well, what are you doing? Are you trimming back on overhead? Are you, you laying off your employees? Oh, no, we would never lay off employees. These people depend on that income for their stability. They're in a small town. We would never lay off employees. We have enough to live on. So what we're doing is working harder to help them become profitable. We're working harder to make them sustainable. Because we don't want them to lose their jobs. So I have extra time. I have extra income. I've been able to cut my income back a bit. I've been able to increase my time in order to make sure they maintain their jobs. There is, there is what Amos is talking about. The second way that we can help the poor is to loan with dignity. Why do I say that here? Because that's what's brought up in the, t- in the text. He said you exact taxes of grain for him. Now, most uh, literally, this involves if you, have, if you have resources that you can loan to someone else, loan them in such a way that they're not unnecessary entanglements. We don't have to get very specific about the the sin of usury, but the the sin of usury is not loaning at interest. The sin is loaning at an interest that someone can never, so that someone will never be able to repay the debt. It's the evil of the payday lending phenomenon, which has come about because it's, it's, it's so hard to become bankable, as one of my bank friends says. So one of my bank friends says, what we must do as Christians is help people become bankable. That is, offer microloans or, or help them to avoid the payday lending phenomenon By when they need a car, when they need to, to buy a car or repair a car or health need or something. Those of us with, with extra resources, however minimal, or if access to people who do have resources is to close the gap so that they're not having to borrow at 450% so that a so that a, a car that costs $5,000 becomes $16,000 the the a, a, a debt that they can never repay it is to loan without uh, without harming someone's dignity That's the point of Deuteronomy 24 when he gives those principles for don't hold someone's cloak and don't hold someone's sandals as collateral. Don't take away from them their basic human dignity or their tools by which they're going to earn an income like the title loan people do. Take the title of the car so that if they default they take even their car away from them so that they can't continue to work. Instead, Loan in such a way that you help them break that cycle and become independent. And then the third point that is alluded to in Amos' address here is leave some for the poor. The principle of gleaning that again is outlined in Deuteronomy 24. It literally in an agrarian society it was leave some out on the edges of the crops so that the poor can come. And gather for themselves. Well if you have a company. Don't exact all of the profits for yourself. If you have time. Don't take all of the time for yourself. If you have have extra joy in your personality. Don't spend it all on yourself. Share it with those who don't have as much. Leave margin in whatever resources you have. For the gleaning of those who are poor. The most obvious way, the most important way that we share with the poor is those who are in poverty, in poverty in their relationship with God. Don't get yourself so busy, so worried, so consumed that you don't have time to tarry with someone who doesn't know Jesus in a personal way and explain to them the reason for your faith or build a relationship with them, a, to to establish a bridge over which you may bring the good news of Christ. Well, let me give some very very specific applications because not because I'm uh, the 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 effort is not this morning to make you feel guilty. It's I know that this church is so motivated by the grace of Jesus that I throw these things out and you you snatch them up and go with them and apply them in ways I could never predict. So let me throw out some other ideas. Let me give some macro applications and then some micro applications. Macro applications, because some of you are so well-connected or God has given you such places of influence. Here are things that you could do to make a real difference in uh, the the materially poor of our society in particular... And uh, arrest this cycle of poverty that leads to so many other complications in our city in Memphis, maybe even around the world. One is that uh, you can acquire property for the poor. The natural economic uh, uh, movement of our country is for people to move back in toward cities. It's cool to live in the city. That means that people who have resources are able to move in, buy a a, a condominium or a house or a lot, and they are able to rehab it or or build a new piece of uh, new house on that property. And what happens to those who are poor in the neighborhood? Their rents go up or they can't afford it any longer and they have to move out. And so what we've already seen is that they're moving from the cities to the suburbs, it's happening all around the country. What's a solution to that? What a friend of mine, Bob Lupton calls gentrification with justice. Gentrification is going to happen. Property is going to switch over. Cities are on, all around the South in particular are growing with middle class, upper class people moving into the, with the poor being moved out. How can, we, how can we arrest that problem? We can acquire property and hold it for the poor. We can buy a piece of property and then help that person become an owner of that property. I've done it. I know it works. Some of you have been involved in it here. We're doing it in Ball. You buy a piece of property, hold it, keep it from one of the big real estate developers swallowing up and making it only available for those who have more resources. Hold that place and allow that person to rent at a reasonable rate or to buy You may have rental property, and people are moving towards your rental property, and they're able to pay more, and so you just keep raising the rent, raising the rent, raising the rent. What if you just kept it level? You can do that at a macro level. That would help break cyclical poverty as stakeholders are able to own property in their neighborhoods. Some of you have influence with Community Reinvestment Act money in your bank. A lot of good things to invest in in, uh, in Memphis, but what if you petitioned your bank to invest in those things that are most effective in breaking cyclical poverty? You can participate in microloans and helping people start microenterprises. You can, you can become a shepherd to someone who has not grown up and One of our opportunity youth, one of our 40,000 opportunity youth in, in Memphis, 18 to 24-year-olds who, who ha, don't have a, a, a father or mother or grandmother even in their life. They don't know the first thing about getting up and going to a job and being responsible. You can be a shepherd through the Memphis Leadership Foundation. Be, be a shepherd to that one and say, here is basic mentoring and how to work. Someone could start a car ministry. It's been a wonderful thing of providing cars for people who don't have access who can't can't get to their jobs in a place that is challenged with this public transportation. You can teach skills that you have, you can invest in somebody's education, you can create jobs. Now what about some micro things? You say that is way beyond me. What about some other things? Well, here's a simple thing, especially for children. You have something that you really want, a new backpack? Then ask around, in your mind, think about who in your, in your class or among your friends doesn't, can't afford the same kind of backpack that you can. Maybe ask mom or dad to buy two of them. They probably can swing it. Or maybe you could contribute to it. Or another pair of shoes. Some of you have vacation properties or have money that you could give to some of our, mission, our ministry partners in town. People who can't get away for any kind of break or vacation some of you do that already you can give counseling for marriages and for family life and for and for financial literacy you can coach an athletic team very important uh, you can do that through our rec ministry or through ma'am, as has already been mentioned. You can provide a meal. You can provide hospitality. Help somebody read, change their life forever, especially if they learn to read before grade three. You can share your joy. You can be a friend. You can receive. You can listen. You can invest in one of our local ministries. You can invest in one of our... Ministries, international partners and all of our international partners, all of our international partners are practicing this strategy of asking, what are the real material felt needs of this society I'm trying to reach into? And they're meeting it in the name of Jesus with a goal toward leading them not only into human flourishing, but into a relationship with Jesus Christ. Well, a few more things from the prophets in general. And then for us in particular, number two, help without hurting. Friends of mine, Steve Corbett and Brian Fickert have written a wonderful book with that title, Helping Without Hurting. One of our own sons, Michael Rhodes, has written a wonderful book called The King's Economy. All of these have this emphasis of, yes, we need to help the impoverished around us in whatever way they're poor, materially, spiritually. Or physically or or, uh, relationally, but we need to help them in such a way that they preserve their dignity and they live in an independent way and become those who can give back. So, a couple of categories, three categories that are helpful as we think about ministering to the poor. It's important to make a distinction between relief and rehabilitation and development. Relief, rehabilitation, and development. All three are calling of, of the people of God, and they're found in the prophets. But uh, let me remind you of what they are. The number one way that we, we help without hurting is to ask, is this uh, an, 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 a need that needs to be relieved immediately? Is this emergent? Well, some of them are. Someone's bleeding, someone's homeless this evening, someone is hungry this instant, someone is having a mental breakdown right now, someone is suicidal this instant. You don't have time to wait and, and, uh, and, and make sure that uh, they're going to be a, a good long-term investment. You've got to answer that. You've got to put a tourniquet on that bleeding, whether it's literal or, or metaphorical or emotional, right now. That's relief. That's what the good Samaritan did, remember? He comes along and he sees a man who had been beaten and uh, he's on the side of the road and he's in a people group that he's not supposed to like and a people group who's probably not going to like that he's helping them. But he sees a man, a human being, bleeding and he gives him mercy immediately, relief. When we see that, we must give relief. Relief. Then the next step is to ask, will this lead to rehabilitation? Is this someone who is constantly injuring himself? Is this someone who is constantly getting into this dysfunction and leading to this emergent need? It doesn't mean that we wash our hands from them and say they don't deserve our help. Thank goodness the Lord doesn't do that to us. But it means instead that we say this needs to be, this is a cycle that needs to be broken. So this requires more resources, a greater team, different people to speak into the need. The principle for that, the biblical principle for that is the image of God. We judge someone's worthiness to receive help even if they're, they're continually not deserving it. They, are in deser- they deserve mercy because they're made in the image of God. And so we, we ask, what, what are the basic assets that they have? How can I help? Using what they have. By definition, they have something. No one is utterly hopeless. No community is absolutely hopeless. I remember working in a community one time that was, that was uh, overtaken with drugs. It just seemed absolutely hopeless. Everybody had washed their hands of it. Public officials, everybody in the neighborhood, everybody left. It's absolutely hopeless. It's t- overtaken by drug lords. So a friend was teaching me this principle in community development they called asset-based community development. That is, what are the assets in that community? What are the assets in those individuals that can be built on? So I said, okay, asset-based community development. I'm going to take you to a community. You tell me what assets they have because it's absolutely hopeless. Well, we drove into the neighborhood. And uh, every time I drove into the neighborhood, I had a black car at the time. They thought I was a policeman. People went scrambling. I said, look at this neighborhood and tell me, what are the assets? And he said, space. What are you talking about? There's space between the houses. That is hopeful. If you had a drug problem in an apartment complex, that's really hard to battle, but you've got space between the houses. It's harder for them to do their drug deals. Now start buying that vacant houses in between, create even more space. Have some daring people move back into this neighborhood, create even more space. And eventually, you keep expanding the space until the drug dealers are let out. Do you know that that happened? And it started with, he saw an asset. He saw that there was something there. What's the biblical principle there? Well, it's the mercy, it's the the image of God in individuals. But you know what else it is? It is the Holy Spirit hovering over any place that we step into. We step into a place of chaos, then we can trust the Holy Spirit who hovered over the chaos of our creation and say, Holy Spirit, bring in the firepower. This situation looks hopeless. Please bring order out of chaos. Third thing is development. What we want to do is not just rehab situations or people, but move them into development. I'm going to tell you something that you know very well because I learned it. From Second Press. I learned it from Sandy and from other key leaders who were doing something cool a number of years ago called the Shalom Project. Sandy Wilson and others granted uh, the the brightest thinkers in Memphis together, key community leaders, and they said, if the Bible says, pray for Shalom to come to the city, pray for the peace of the city. If the Bible says, marry and, and plant gardens, and so in the city, even where you're captive, Then how do you define, how do you know when Shalom has come to a city or come to a community? And they defined nine things. They identified nine things. Spiritual health, church, public safety, family life, education, health, housing, economic opportunity, arts and entertainment, community involvement. I was so excited to find that out. I put it into a chart. I put it into a bullseye. I put it into a a graph, and I put it on my desk, and I put it on every person's desk in our staff. And I said, "There's what we're looking for. We are looking for shalom." And it doesn't mean that we do this first, that second. That we're not going to plant it. You don't necessarily plant a church first, and then you do community development. No, we do. We ask what are the pockets of need. And we bring the resources of Christ on his throne to bear on that community by prayer, by work, by investment. And we are doing what Jesus says to do, pray for the peace, the shalom of God to come to this city. I look around this this sanctuary, I see people involved in all of those, many of those rings. And you're discouraged and you're distressed, you hear things like the shooting outside of ma'am, or you hear, we know what we've been through recently in this city, and you say, all is hopeless. But as long as Pentecost is true, and as long as Jesus has poured out that spirit on the church of Jesus Christ and said, take this good news by word, by this good news by word and deed into all the earth, pray for the kingdom of God to come and his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. As long as those truths are true, there is hope for Memphis and every place in the world that we have contact with. This is no time, no opportunity for us to pull back. This is no time for us to to wring our hands and say, the devil has this city and we need to pull back from it. Absolutely not. This is our city. This city belongs to King Jesus. And we must not rest until at the great day perhaps God fulfills that promise to give us a city with streets where the children play safely in. And old men and women, because of their age, live lean on their canes and watch those children play about their feet. That's our mission. That's the goal. That's what we're pursuing. And we do it by answering the need wherever we find it. Not trying to take it all on at once, but saying, I know this, Jesus has saved me. And if Jesus could take me out of my spiritual and eternal poverty. If he could change my situation, rescue me from my addiction, rescue me from my materialism, rescue me from my, whatever it is, he could rescue me. He can rescue anyone, and I yield my resources to you, Lord Jesus. Let me close this way. Recently I had in my home some dear friends who are missionaries of this church in Haiti. If there is any place on the face of the earth that this pastor is tempted to say it's hopeless, it's Haiti. Haiti holds a very special place in my heart. Very dear friends there. These are among them. And our friends are sharing with us what they are trying to to do. Haiti is absolutely melting down. You know, the president was assassinated. There's a, there's a temporary president. Gangs are in control. They're in control of the ports. They're holding all the food and the fuel hostage. They're starving out the rest of the country. No one has, no one and none of the, the first world powers think that Haiti is uh, of national interest enough to intervene. It is, seems absolutely hopeless. Our friend said, when we look at the whole situation from a macro perspective, that's where I get that word this morning, we're overwhelmed, we despair. We can't look at that. We can't solve the political problem. We can't solve the military problem. We can't solve the systemic poverty problem. But here's what we can do. We were walking along the road one day and we heard a child cry." And we found a baby in a box. All we knew that we were supposed to do at that point was to get the baby out of the box. Got the baby out of the box. Took him home. Found that He has Down syndrome. He has brain injury. He has a broken neck. He has all kinds of problems. We've got to get him basic health needs. They didn't go all the way to where they are right now. That They're going to adopt the child and it's taken... Thousands of dollars and lots of hours. All they knew was they needed relief right then. But then they said, what are we going to do with him long term? Well, we got to help him live. And then he needs to be a part of our family. And being a part of our family, he needs to be a part of the church family. And Moses was in our home too the other night. He's a mess. In every way. But he knows he's loved. He was the definition of poverty, the reflection of Haiti in one person. And they can't change all of Haiti. But by answering this need in front of them with the resources they have, can you imagine the difference? It's going to be made in that child's life to the point that someday when he's whole in heaven, he'll be able to say, I remember everything you did for me. And I thank you into all of eternity for it. His life is making an impact on others even though he can't speak. And it all started with people walking down the road saying, You've saved us. Show us whatever need there is around us and we'll answer it. There's a baby crying in a box. What pain, what poverty, what need do you have here, see around you? Put the spirit to the test, step into it and say, let me see what I can do here. And watch the difference that a sovereignly gracious God can make? That's the point of the passage. He sought you and me that we might live. Seek others that they might live too. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord Jesus, we thank you that you never leave us comfortable. Because if you left us comfortable we would miss out on the eternally exciting work that you are doing in our world and want to include us in. Yes, we need to be granted repentance. Yes, some of us need to be saved. Yes, some of us need to have our minds and hearts changed and our vision changed. But as many here as name the Lord Jesus, we say to you, we want to be used. We want to spread the good news of the salvation, the liberation that we have received in Jesus Christ to any form of poverty we find around us. Someone who has a broken relationship with you. Someone who has a broken relationship with himself. Someone has a broken relationship with the material world. Use us. And in using us, get a name for yourself. In Jesus' name, God's people said, amen.